Hello, this is Terrence McNally. Our housing crisis is about more than homelessness. The U.S. is short one million homes. Housing affordability is at an all-time low. The gap between black and white homeowners is the same as it was in 1968. Rising mortgage rates cause many would-be buyers to remain renters, and Americans now spend 30% of their income on rent. Here's my 2020 conversation with Aaron Glantz about his book, Homewreckers, how a gang of Wall Street kingpins, hedge fund magnets, crooked banks, and vulture capitalists suckered millions out of their homes and demolished the American dream. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to another episode of Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'm going to be speaking today with Aaron Glantz. He's a senior reporter at Reveal about his book, Homewreckers. Listen for the subtitle here. How a gang of Wall Street kingpins, hedge fund magnets, crooked banks, and vulture capitalists suckered millions out of their homes and demolished the American dream. You can learn more at revealnews.org and aglance.com, and that's A-G-L-A-N-T-Z, aglance.com. And the show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn, and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. Now to today's conversation. One individual Los Angeles area homeowner, Sandy Jolly, fought for 10 years and eventually won an $89 million whistleblower settlement against Trump Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin's bank, One West. And along the way, Tom Barrack, founder and CEO of Colony Capital, chairman of President Donald J. Trump's inaugural committee, Steve Schwartzman, chairman and CEO of the Blackstone Group, and Jamie Dimon, chairman and CEO J.P. Morgan Chase, also profited off Sandy Jolly's misfortune. Like millions of others around the country, Jolly's 1,500-square-foot home in Thousand Oaks is now owned by an LLC and part of a giant mortgage-backed security. In the book Home Wreckers, Aaron Glantz tells how a group of Wall Street bankers and private equity guys, and they were mostly guys, including Trump cabinet members Mnuchin and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, as well as Trump confidants and funders like Schwartzman, Barack, and others, exploited a rigged system in which billions of dollars in wealth was transferred to them from millions of individual homeowners after the real estate crash of the Great Recession. And naturally, many of these same people are now working to weaken the safeguards that were put in place to prevent its happening again. And as you can hear, some of them are working from right inside the administration. Uh, Aaron Glantz is a senior reporter at Reveal. Uh, Reveal is a part of the Center for Investigative Reporting. Aaron's work has appeared in the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, PBS NewsHour, and, and this may be more important, it has sparked more than a dozen congressional hearings, numerous laws, and criminal probes by the DEA, FBI, Pentagon, and Federal Trade Commission. That's impactful investigative reporting. He's a two-time Peabody Award winner, finalist for a Pulitzer Prize, multiple Emmy nominee. His books include How America Lost Iraq, the War Comes Home, Washington's Battle Against America's Veterans, and his latest, Home Wreckers, How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund Magnets, Crooked Banks, Vulture Capitalists, Suckered Millions Out of Their Homes, Demolished the American Dream. Welcome, Aaron Glantz, to Freeform, a world that just might work. 
Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and let me tell listeners we're recording this conversation Tuesday, January 21st. I like listeners to get a feel for the people uh, behind the work and the ideas that we talk about here. So let us know a bit about yourself. Briefly, perhaps, how do you see your path to the work you do today? And feel free to go way back, mentors, turning points, moments of decision, that sort of thing. Well, I, uh, I grew up in San Francisco. I'm 42 years old. Uh, so gives you a sense of the changes that have happened in the San Francisco Bay Area in the state of California during my lifetime. And when I was going to high school back in the 90s, uh, this was during the dot-com bubble. One of the motivating factors that got me into journalism was this question, would I be able to afford to live in the city that I grew up in? Or would I be forced out like so many other people were being forced out uh, even then by creeping gentrification? Uh, would the public transportation system work to get me from point A to point B? You know, these are basic questions. And, you know, then one thing led to another. I started my career at the Pacifica Radio Network at KPFA. I covered the state capitol. And then uh, I ended up being an international journalist, working, uh, covering the war in Iraq for a number of years, covering the horrible treatment of veterans after they came home, the way veterans were doped up on opiates by the VA, uh, won some major national awards for that coverage, and as you mentioned in your intro, had a really big impact uh, in terms of getting veterans speedier benefits, uh, getting the narcotic prescriptions more limited and responsible at the VA. Uh, President Obama even signed a law uh, based on uh, my reporting that completely overhauled the way the VA prescribed narcotics. Uh, and after, after years of reporting on the war in veterans, I, you know, back here in San Francisco, looking at the conditions around me, watching the situations that were developing around 2016, uh, the rise of Donald Trump, uh, a right-wing populist, uh, the rise on the left of Bernie Sanders, a left-wing populist. Uh, so in that 2016 election, you had the vast majority of the American people understanding, uh, both on the left and the right, that the economy was fundamentally not working for them. And uh, this was at a time, as the president loves to point out, when unemployment was low and the Dow Jones Industrial Average was high. So things should be going great, and yet they weren't. And so I decided to lean back into some of those original reasons that I got involved in journalism, uh, you know, issues of housing, gentrification, and wealth. And in America, you know, we live in a country where, for most Americans, your home is your wealth. The average American homeowner is worth about $200,000. The average tenant is worth about $2,000. So the homeowner is worth 100 times more. This is not because homeowners make 100 times more money. It's because month after month, homeowners are making mortgage payments, building equity for themselves and their families that they can pass on to the next generation. And renters are taking 30, 40, 50% of their monthly paycheck and handing it over to their landlord and giving their landlord the benefit of that wealth. Mm -hmm. And um, you uh, point out uh, that uh, housing, that, that most American families spend nearly 80% on five essentials, housing, food, clothing, health care, transportation, and only housing out of those regular expenses they have has a chance to retain or 
a cre- increase in value. And so to people who aren't kind of looking at it that way, they may not might not see the point you're making that kind of is at the core of your book, which is home ownership is the only way sort of in, in, in this expensive consumption society to actually gain some, some wealth. Yeah, if you buy clothes, they fall apart. If you drive your car, it depreciates in value, and when you buy gas, the gas is literally burned up. Um, most of the money, like your health care premiums, that's money that you're never going to see again. And so, you know, when we hear about the stock market and 401ks, I mean, only a very small percentage of Americans have any stock at all. Uh, and yet, 60% of American families own their own home. And so that then becomes the vehicle that people have to accumulate wealth and security. And so, you know, sitting right now in the Center for Investigative Reporting's office, I'm making about the same amount of money as many of my colleagues. I own my own home. I bought my home in 2009 uh, when the market was low. And so now my mortgage payments are fixed every single month. And the only way that I'm going to be displaced out of San Francisco is if I end up unemployed or something else terrible happens to me. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not it, it, it is very much in my control. And by the way, uh, my colleagues who are renting, who are at the mercy of the market, are paying way more money than me for way less space. Right. And they are worried that they're going to be kicked out um, and, uh, and forced to leave the entire region. And so when we ask about these issues, uh, gentrification, inequality, segregation, I mean, we have to talk about who owns property and uh, and how that is uh, helped by the government or you know as i write in the book home records how the government actually has more recently been involved in stripping people's equity stripping equity from families and that opportunity to save over the long term okay and and as we're we're, we're setting up here this notion that home ownership is a source of wealth for the middle class and by the year 2000 you point out more than 2 thirds of americans own their own home and the and my question first is how did that happen? Yeah, this is a very important point that I I raise in the book, and I did not understand it until I started writing this book. When I wrote the book, as I mentioned, I was trying to get inside of the economic unease in this country that existed in 2016 and continues to exist today. Uh, the growth of the you know the one percent now owns as much wealth as the bottom ninety percent. Uh, these dynamics and looking at home ownership uh, specifically in that regard. One thing that I did not understand was that this American dream of home ownership is a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, you know, when the U.S. was founded uh, back in the uh, 1800s, uh, you know, you had to have property to vote, um, and, and, and property ownership was seen as key to being an American. But the way that the government supported property ownership was mostly by telling white people that they can move west and dispossess Indians of their <laughs> land. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution uh, you started to see people moving into cities. In 1890, the home ownership rate in Omaha, Nebraska was 20%. 
there was no path for these working city dwellers to own their own home, to build wealth, to have security. Uh, How the Other Half Lives, uh, written by Jacob Reese about the tenements in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. This was the choice that people had, either live in the city, work in a job, and live in a tenement, or live out you know, in the countryside farming somewhere. And it wasn't until the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt that the government created the 30-year fixed mortgage that we take for granted today. Uh, You know, back during the Gilded Age, the bankers like J.P. Morgan, they lent to Rockefeller to build oil, you know, oil rigs and railroads and stuff like that, but they did not lend to working families. And, uh, you know, the kind of bank that we imagine when we close our eyes and, you know, we see It's a Wonderful Life and Jimmy Stewart and all of that, that all dates to the New Deal. Okay. So, and yet by 2016, which is when you began this, this, this in earnest, homeownership had hit its lowest level. So we've tracked how it grew. Now in 2016, it hits, this is eight years after the crash. It hits its lowest level in more than 50 years. The first thing I want to point out is that notice that, that the crash happens and homeownership continues to go down. It doesn't hit its lowest level in 2008, 2009, 2010. It's not until 2016. What is happening in those eight years? What's happening in those eight years is that families continue to lose their homes and the government, and remember Obama is the president during this time, basically puts incentives in place at every step of the way to advantage speculators who want to come in and buy these homes or banks that want to profit by foreclosing on homes rather than everyday Americans. And so, you know, one of the things that we saw during the Great Depression was that even though unemployment was up to 25%, uh, there was a government-run bank called the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and it would step in and refinance the loans of people who were behind, and it saved a million homes. And it refinanced one out of every five homes in urban America. And when it did have to foreclose, because it was a government-run bank, it was still a bank, um, it would then take those homes and try to find other families who wanted to live in them and finance these new families to buy them. And that is not what happened during the Great Recession after 2008. Uh, President Bush and then Obama were approached by leading thinkers, you know, not just lefties, but former members of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, uh, advisors to President Reagan, representatives of the uh, conservative American Enterprise Institute. And they all said that creating something new, like a government-run bank to help homeowners, uh, would likely be more effective than a gigantic bank bailout. And they were laughed out of the room by both Obama and, uh, and, and, and Bush and by Schumer and Pelosi, who then, as now, were the leaders in Congress. And what we had was, instead of the bailing out of individual families, we had uh, rules that were written that advantaged the banks as they foreclosed on people. So the bank that I tell the story of, primarily in this book, uh, that foreclosed on the home of Sandy Jolly, the Thousand Oaks homeowner that you mentioned at the outset, it was run by a guy named Steve Mnuchin, who's Treasury Secretary under Trump. And 
he watched this bank based in Pasadena called IndyMac collapse. Now, IndyMac uh, was a terrible bank. It specialized in reverse mortgages that take the equity of people who already live in their homes, senior citizens, and then foreclose on them and take the home when they die. Um, it uh, specialized in so-called ninja loans, no income, no assets, no job, no problem. We give you the loan anyway. It's specialized in interest-only loans where you make a payment like a high-interest credit card, and instead of going down every month, the principal goes up. And when the economy cratered in 2008, in July 2008, this bank failed. And instead of stabilizing the homeowners after this, what the government did was it gave the bank for free to a concern led by Steve Mnuchin that also included John Paulson, George Soros, Michael Dell, the founder of Dell Computer. And we made them a deal where not only did they get the bank for free, but also if they lost money for closing on families uh, by loans made by the old bank, IndyMac, we would subsidize their losses. We would subsidize the losses alone. We would pay a big percentage of their attorney's fees, appraisal costs, inspection costs, we end up paying Steve Mnuchin and his, his group more than a billion dollars as they foreclose on 137,000 families, and, and including 23,000 seniors, and we pay for it. Wow. Let me, let me pull a couple of things out of what you've talked about. One is 2000 to 2016, that's eight years before the crash to eight years after. And now I'm just probing a little bit as to what made homeowners so vulnerable um, some of what happened was that so many refinanced their homes to supplement stagnant wages. There were there, whether it was uh, reverse mortgages or just uh, you know refis. And I can remember uh, at the time getting you know emails you know just every day uh, and phone calls uh, asking me if I wanted to refi. So the long rise in real estate values had convinced many people that they could never lose that they'd refi now and then they'd refi three years later because their house would have gone up. Did that practice contribute to the vulnerability that these individual homeowners were facing when the crash hit? The answer is yes, and there were many other factors as well. Oh. There were so many causes for our collapse. Um, there was all the betting that went on on these bad loans. There was the aggressive salesmanship that went on with these bad loans. Uh, Sandy Jolly's parents uh, in Thousand Oaks, they, they took out a reverse mortgage yep. on their home that eventually led to the foreclosure. And, um, and when the salesman came to their house, and I have a copy of the PowerPoint that was used, the last slide read, so you ask, what's the catch? None. Right. Right. So there was this really aggressive salesmanship going on. A lot of people were duped. Um, and, uh, and then a lot of people just got greedy. We, we have to, um, you know, we have to be honest about that. What I was interested in was not relitigating mm -hmm. what caused the collapse, yeah. but trying to understand why it was that we didn't have one group of homeowners who lost and another group yep. of maybe, yep. quote-unquote, more responsible homeowners who gained. We had millions, eight million people lost their homes, and then a small group of tycoons connected to Donald Trump who gained. Okay, so let me, let me continue to sort of try to unravel this. So when I read bought homes, bundled them in groups, traded them on Wall Street using new financial instruments, it sounds exactly to me like the subprime crisis. Uh, the, 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 the mechanisms seem very similar, and you would think that we would have learned some lessons. 
Okay, so first my question is, you know, the similarities between what's gone on in the housing market and what went on prior to the crash. And that second question would be, what was the justification of the Obama administration for laughing off these other solutions and and basically giving all the benefits to the big players uh, of, of this, you know, of buying at the bottom rather than to the people of America? It was just seen as too complicated, you know, to start a government-run bank in 2008. And it was just seen as so much easier to bail out the banks. Uh, I, I, when I interviewed these people, the former members of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, uh, the people who are part of the Council of Economic Advisors, you know, professors at Harvard and Stanford, etc., who got in the room to talk to them, I expected to hear about this big lobbying pushback mm-hmm. from the banks. But that is not what I heard. What I heard is people were laughed out of the room. Uh, they just were not taken seriously. The thinking was considered too out of the box. And the government was seen as being in a big hurry to stop the bleeding and, and was not seen as having enough, quote-unquote, time to build something um, else. But what I write about in the book is how this did not just only happen in 2008. It continued year after year after year all through, you know, the Obama decade. So in 2012, you know, we had been pushing people towards foreclosure through the incentive system that I mentioned. And and the government ended up owning, because we were backing up a lot of these bad mortgages, right, right. remember, the government ended up owning about 200,000 homes. And it did not want to own these homes. So there's this agency called the Federal Housing Finance Agency. And it put out one of these administrative rulemaking documents on the Internet. They asked people to comment, what should the government do with hundreds of thousands of homes? And people wrote in. Uh, Cities wrote in saying they'd like to be able to use them for uh, affordable housing. Civil rights groups uh, wrote in saying that it provides a historic opportunity to right the wrongs of segregation. All of these empty and foreclosed homes. Uh, There were people who wrote in again, suggesting that the government could finance the purchase of these homes by families, uh, and just so that the ownership just went from one family to another. Uh, Nonprofits wrote in saying this was a great opportunity for them to uh, get uh, affordable rental housing onto the market. Um, And what the Obama administration did was it didn't do a single one of those things. Uh, All these great ideas that were put forward. Yeah. And none of them. And instead what it did is it bundled the homes together and sold them off to companies like Colony Capital, which is run by uh, Donald Trump's best friend, uh, uh, Tom Barrick, and uh, Blackstone Corporation, which is run by another confidant of Donald Trump, Steve Schwartzman. And when I interview people from the Federal Housing Finance Agency, you know, years later, and I said, how could you um, give these homes to these, you know, hedge funds that used to be the wealth of families, um, they said, well, we just wanted to get to the best deal that we could for consumers. And then I said, yes, but if you look at the bottom line, you lost a tremendous amount of these sales. You uh, sold, for example, a controlling interest in a 1,000 homes across Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Phoenix to Tom Barrick's company for about 30 cents on the dollar. And, and the FHA, FHA uh, government spokesman would say, well, that was the best deal we could get. It was an open bidding process. And I said, yeah, it was an open bidding process if you wanted to bid on 1,000 homes at once. 
Right, exactly. that certainly lowers the number of people who are going to be able to compete in the bidding. Right. I mean, as soon as you start selling them off in those huge things, you're you're basically have created a market for homes which is only limited to banks and investors, right? Yeah, I don't think uh, probably, Terrence, you probably can't afford to buy a thousand homes in one go. <laughs> That's right. That is right. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me as I was reading this was just, and, and, and you know, is how horrific it is that as we've laid out, these real estate vultures put home ownership out of the reach of millions, robbing them of their middle class life and their middle class futures. And it is many of those same people who put one of those real estate vultures in the White House to compound the damage. Um, it, that's not a coincidence, is it? What we saw in 2016 was, as you remember, most of the smart Wall Street money was on Hillary. Mm-hmm. Um, Hillary was the favorite candidate of Goldman Sachs. She had given those speeches to Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't uh, share the transcript. That was a big scandal, right? Um, and nobody really thought Hillary was going to be somebody who would challenge Wall Street. Uh, what people didn't, I think, understand fully at that time was that Trump was being supported by and, you know, what I would say is like the bottom feeders of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. You know, Steve Mnuchin, who bought IndyMac Bank um, for uh, nothing and then received a billion dollars in subsidies for his group as he foreclosed on over 100,000 families. The reason he becomes the Treasury Secretary under Trump is because he spotted Trump's rise early and volunteered to be his finance chairman of his campaign during a time when most of the smart Republican money was still on Jeb Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Barrick and Donald Trump go back 30 years. Uh, Steve Schwartzman uh, also comes from that uh, same, uh, you know, New York uh, uh, brash uh, Wall Street betting set. And, you know, there's innumerable photos of them going to each other's celebrity birthday parties mm-hmm. over the years. So, uh you know, Wilbur Ross is somebody who we haven't mentioned yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wilbur Ross, uh, the Commerce Secretary, he did the same thing that Steve Mnuchin did, uh, taking a bank off the government's hands for nothing, and then the government uh, paid him a ton to foreclose on families. That bank was based in Florida called Bank United. Uh, he's another early uh, backer of Trump, another uh, vulture capitalist, uh, uh, Steve Feinberg of Cerebrus, who's, you know, went as a private equity firm, bought a ton of homes uh, during the recession. So I could keep going like this forever. The point is that there was this small group of people close to Trump uh, who were the renegades on Wall Street, yeah. who profited yeah. specifically off the Great Recession, who were, you know, by all accounts, uh, you know, more rapacious than the regular Wall Street folks who are backing Clinton. Right. No, it's interesting because I think when, when people think about who was behind Trump, it's, you know, it's Bannon and Breitbart and that sort of thing. And he seems to just be, you know, the, this, this uh, crazy cowboy, right? But in fact, there was a segment of the 1%, a very specific segment, that saw him uh, as one of their own. Yeah, and I would ask you, uh, Terrence, to consider who has not abandoned the president. You know, you mentioned Steve Bannon. He was in, and now he's out. We could talk about 
John Kelly and H.R. Mm. McMaster right, and James right. Mattis and the, just the revolving door of people who go in and out of the Trump administration. You know, if it's Tuesday, there's another departure, right? Well, guess who's not departing? Steve Mnuchin. Wilbur Ross, Tom Barrick still in his ear. Like, this is the core supporters of the president. And while we're all obsessed about whatever the next scandal is, um, they're quietly going about looting the country. Right. And and just while we're talking about Trump, let's talk about Fred Trump. So that this this uh, this practice uh, is is really where he, he this sort of practice is really how he built the family fortune, isn't it? Yes. One of the things that I discovered when I was writing this book that was the most fascinating to me is that in many ways, you know, Fred Trump was the original homewrecker. You know, so the book is Homewreckers, and it describes how all of these people close to Donald Trump bet big off of the housing bust and basically took our wealth. And what was interesting to me is, you know, Donald Trump, pretends to be a real estate genius, but really he's a marketing genius. You know, his mm-hmm. big profiteering off of the Great Recession was Trump University, which was a sham real estate school held in hotel ballrooms. Mm-hmm. But Trump's dad, Fred Trump, he was just a regular, ordinary uh guy stocking shelves at a supermarket in Queens during the Great Depression. And 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 where others, you know, were were seeing all of the pain of the Great Depression as just a horrific blight on the nation, he saw an opportunity. So there was this bank called Laren Krauss that served the German community in Brooklyn and Queens. Um back in the 1920s and 30s, and it turned out to be a gigantic fraud. I mean, very, very similar to the kind of frauds that we saw in the housing bubble in the 2000s, you know, selling uh, mortgages to people who couldn't afford them, uh, then, you know, all these kinds of, like, ridiculous money games to cover it up, and then eventually this bank uh, comes crashing down and it goes into bankruptcy, and Fred Trump shows up. He lies to the court about being an experienced uh, real estate guy. He poses as an attorney, um, which he was not, and he finds a way to get the mortgage list of this failed bank. So not the actual mortgages. He gets the right to service the mortgage. So if you were a struggling homeowner, you would be paying your mortgage to Fred Trump, and then he would be passing on the payments to the people who bought the underlying debt. And what this did is it gave Fred Trump a real advance intelligence on who was going to get foreclosed on. Mm, And so then when people would get foreclosed on, he would buy up their homes, and then he would demolish those homes, and that's how he built some of the first buildings that he ever built in his fortune. Very good. Let me uh, tell people that you're listening to Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking with Aaron Glantz, um, formerly with Pacifica, uh, a Pacifica alumni, if you will, senior reporter at Reveal. And we're talking about his book, Home Wreckers, and it's uh, how a gang of Wall Street kingpins, hedge fund magnets, crooked banks, vulture capitalists suckered millions out of their homes and thereby demolished the American dream. You can learn more at Reveal News, one word, revealnews.org, and at aglance, A-G-L-A-N-T-Z, aglance.com. Hello, this is Terrence McNally. You're listening to my 2020 conversation with Aaron Glantz about his book, Home Wreckers. 
how a gang of Wall Street kingpins, hedge fund magnates, crooked banks, and vulture capitalists suckered millions out of their homes and demolished the American dream. Um, just let me, it, this sort of, you, we've touched on it back and forth, but let me just put this question out there so you can respond to it directly. Having cash when the economy crashes is not a crime. Um, was the buying spree of the big investors just wise purchasing? I mean, even if we don't like the ripple effects, there's nothing illegal about buying at the bottom. I mean, regular homeowners did it too. What was the rigging? Was it the, uh, the rules that the Obama administration did? Was it the fact that banks, having, having had such a tough time, would, would turn away? They, they, they'd loan to anybody leading up to the crash. Now they turned away families and went instead for big investors. What's, what's at the core here that makes what looks like just you know, savvy uh, financial transactions worse than that? The the thing was, the system was rigged. If we had a true capitalist economy here, and people were to lose their homes in foreclosure, there would be banks taking losses on those foreclosures. And so then the banks might not foreclose as often because they'd be looking at taking a loss. But we were paying for the foreclosure, we the taxpayers. Then the, the home would be lost, and it would be on the auction block. And then we would subsidize the people who were coming in to buy the homes in the way that I described. So at every, at every step of the game, there was a choice to be made. You know, do we subsidize the people who are, are at the top, or do we subsidize millions of families? And we pick subsidizing people at the top. And so that's why we can be sitting here 10 years after the crash and saying the top 1% is worth as much as the bottom 90% because the system was indeed rigged. The government did move its chips to a certain sect of the super rich who benefited tremendously. So you're right, there was no crime. Steve Mnuchin, um, uh, you know, mostly um, the <laughs> scheme was illegal. Uh, you know, I write in the book about how uh, he probably cut corners his bank on the foreclosure of homes and uh, and 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 was investigated by the California Attorney General Kamala Harris whose attorneys suggested he be prosecuted uh for breaking the rules of that agreement that he made with the feds uh his bank was later uh, taken to task for redlining over 5 years it helped only 3 African American families and 11 families by homes 11 Latino families by homes over five years. Uh, you know, banks are supposed to help all members of the community buy homes, not only white people. Um, so there was on the margin certainly uh, perhaps some illegal activity uh, where people could have been held accountable. But the main thing was that we moved our chips onto the side of the rich. Okay, let's talk um, about the uh, redlining. How and why did that seemed to happen uh, and, and explain to people what it is, how it works, and how we thought we were past that, right? Well, I don't know if people ever felt that racial justice in America truly existed, but, you know, redlining goes back to the 1930s, and I was talking earlier about this government-run bank, the Homeowners Loan right. Corporation, which saved a million homes during the Great Depression and refinanced one out of every five mortgages and, you know, really was a tremendous energy engine of growth for the modern middle class. An uh, important addendum to that is that this was a government-run bank that only served white people and that there were... M 
government employees who went out into every neighborhood in America, and they drew lines on maps. And they, uh, they colored neighborhoods with large numbers of people of color red, and they told banks not to lend there. And that's called redlining. And redlining was the law of the land all through the 30s and 40s and 50s. And then um, in 1968, when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, um, the government passed the Fair Housing Act, and it made this activity illegal. And now the government uh, was requiring that lenders serve the entire community, and they could not discriminate. Um, so that was 53 years ago, 52 years ago now, that the government banned redlining. Uh, but, it, you know, this practice never really went away. Uh, during the housing bubble, uh, you had... Uh, Banks like Wells Fargo, uh, internal memorandums saying they were making quote-unquote ghetto loans to quote-unquote mud people. Uh, the science shows that people of color were far more likely to be targeted for predatory loans with high interest rates, balloon payments, and, you know, the other kind of junk products that you and I were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when the uh, economy crashed, those same communities were the most likely to be dispossessed. And so Steve Mnuchin's bank, for example, uh, I mentioned that it made, uh, you know, it only helped three African-American families and 11 Latino families buy homes over five years. Uh, this same bank concentrated about 70% of its foreclosures in communities of color. Okay, so the average white family is now worth 14 times more than the average African-American. The average black family has less than $10,000 to its name. And government statistics actually show that nearly one in three black families are literally worth zero. Um, can you tell the story of your 2018 expose on this redlining in the Philadelphia area and the uh, positive uh, consequences of your reporting? Yeah, I mean, so this is systemic this redlining. And we've been talking about it in the context of people like Steve Mnuchin, who are in Donald Trump's orbit. And it's really important because now he is the Treasury Secretary overseeing the regulation of all American banks, right? So the guy who we've been talking right. about who ran a bank that never lent to people of color, almost never, now he's in charge of making sure that banks follow this law. Outrageous, right? Of course. Uh, but it's not only one bank, it's all banks. And at Reveal, my colleague Emmanuel Martinez and I, we um, in 2018 went through 31 million mortgage records that covered uh, basically every single loan application in America in 2015 and 2016. And Emmanuel ran a, a statistical technique to see how the banks were treating people differently uh, when they made the same amount of money, uh, tried to take out the same size loan, and live in the same neighborhood. Would people of color and white borrowers have a different result? And we found that, you know, even today, there were 61 cities, uh, Atlanta, Detroit, Vallejo, California, Santa Fe, New Mexico, Atlanta, Georgia, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia, as you mentioned, are among them where people of color were far more likely to be denied a mortgage uh, even when they had the same uh, credit profile. Okay. And so you, you put this out, and it seems that this did actually there – were, there were positive consequences to these revelations. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and th there were some. I mean, we, we took on J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, 
because this was a bank that uh, in some big cities like Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. and Boston almost never made loans to people of color. Uh, they responded by opening a lot of new branches and promising to serve the community more. Same thing with TD Bank, which is a major East Coast bank. Uh, the city of Philadelphia ended up committing $100 million to help uh, first-time home buyers, uh, which was a pretty a significant move. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would say more broadly, redlining has really become part of the discussion uh, amongst the candidates for president. And a number of candidates, including uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, have made specific reference of our reporting uh, as they have launched their own housing and equity plans. So I, I think that we definitely have a situation now where most of the Democratic candidates for president are aware of the issues that you and I are, have been discussing and are putting forward some kind of um, a proposal in response to that. And that's, that's because uh, what we've done here is taken something that's been silent, that's been happening quietly, explain it, and put it out in the open so that people have to debate it and come up with policy solutions to it. Right. And one of the things that you uh, discovered or pointed out was that 99% of national banks during this time that all this redlining was going on had received a satisfactory or outstanding grade on the Community Reinvestment Act inspections um, during that time. Uh, how, how did that happen? Um, this was... Uh, um how did it happen? That was the Obama bank regulators, yep. right? The Obama bank regulators looked at a country where people of color were being systematically denied mortgage credit and said that they should not be punished under a 1977 law uh, to combat redlining. Uh, and one of the impacts of that was that Steve Mnuchin's bank, which almost never made loans to people of color and has since paid a $100 million redlining settlement, by the way, was itself given a satisfactory grade right. under the Community Reinvestment Act. Uh, interestingly, though, the federal regulators in Washington, uh, you know, which are now captured by Trump, think that even these rules are too too strong, and they've proposed uh, weakening it dramatically. And the guy in charge of this effort, his name is Joseph Auding, um, he was the CEO of Mnuchin's Bank uh, during the time that I wrote about, and I write about Auding in the book. Uh, and, you know, recently I was asked to testify before Congress about Auding's record, uh, because what we have now is a guy who's rewriting the rules of the Community Reinvestment Act, who himself, you know, certainly failed to follow the spirit of that law, and yet at the same time was giving a satisfaction factory grade under the Obama years. Very good. So, so it turns out, I mean, you can have laws on the books even, um, and, and laws passed maybe when, when the, the mood of the country, the mood of Washington is one way, but I I enforcement is where the, the rubber hits the road. And, and if people choose not to enforce, um, the, the law means nothing. Uh, let me just go a little tangent here because We've just told a story about uh, some investigative reporting that, re that, that sh reveals and shines a light on these practices and has positive consequences, whether it's uh, the banks themselves, the city of Philadelphia, um, etc. You're a senior reporter at Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. Um, who is that and who funds it? The Center for Investigative Reporting is the oldest nonprofit in America specializes in investigative reporting. And... Uh, we produce our weekly radio show, Reveal, that you can hear on more than 500 
radio stations across America and uh, download our weekly podcast. So in addition to the book, Home Records, there's a radio episode, an uh, hour-long documentary featuring uh, myself and Sandy Jolly, the main homeowner in the book. And, uh, you know, there's a new investigation uh, every week. And, you know, we're like a lot of other nonprofits. We're funded by uh, donations from people just like your listeners, together with uh, charitable foundations and whatever other money we can scurry up from somewheres. Right, and I assume a lot of my listeners know this already, but that sort of real-world result coming out of investigative journalism makes the point of what we're losing as media companies go out of business or gut staff. Can you talk just a bit about that? I mean, I've spent the last five years now you know, going after issues of income and wealth in America. Uh, we my colleague Emmanuel and I, we went through 31 million mortgage records uh, to come to that conclusion on redlining. It took a fair amount of time for me to write the book Home Records, and now having finished the book, they're still giving me time to talk to you and push the ball forward and do new investigations in this very critical subject area, right, uh, that is about the heart of the American dream. Uh, my bosses are not, you know, telling me to go out and cover whatever Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber is doing. And, um, and that, you know, that is something where the number of people in the media who are doing this work has certainly um, declined in recent years. So I feel very blessed to be able to keep at it. Right. And, and I'm, I'm going to read a quote of, of yours, which is, I have faith, this is, this is your words, I have faith that when facts are brought into the sunlight, major, even systemic problems can be addressed with benefits in the real world for the people who need them most. Now, in lots of areas that I've been looking at with uh, my own research and guests and so on, it appears that the best moves uh, in the positive direction are not going to happen out of D.C. The, the gridlock there is, is, is seem, you know, baked in at this point, and so you see regional, state, local governments. Can they... Uh, can they be a force for good in these uh, in these particular issue areas? I think that we're looking at a situation where uh, it's hard to imagine that the federal government is going to do much. I mean, we have a Congress that is generally dysfunctional and a president whose administration is dominated by homewreckers. On the other hand, you know, I mean, here in the state of California, I mean, we all have to say we're the fifth biggest economy in the world. Um, this is where a lot of the profiteering has taken place, yep. especially in Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles is an epicenter of the foreclosure crisis. It is an epicenter of our housing affordability crisis. It has seen some of the highest percentages of homes bought by shell companies in America. Um, so when you talk about laws that could require banks to better serve their community or, uh, you know, require disclosures from shell companies so we can know who these landlords are or provide protections for tenants or even uh, build a, some kind of public interest lending environment where the state becomes an actor. Uh, California is certainly big enough. It's bigger than most countries around the world which have some of these uh, protections in place. Okay, so yes, there can be progress on a state and local level. I mean, when you look at the redlining story, there's been six state attorney generals right. who have launched investigations of, of banks in response to our redlining investigation. Uh, we did not have the same kind of reaction from the CFPB, which has been captured by Trump. Sure. Um, let's talk about one other aspect of this, which is that a lot of these speculator purchases are all cash transactions. All cash transactions have come to account for a quarter 
of all residential real estate purchases, hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and uh, what are some of the implications of that and the anonymity of ownership and your battles to find out who's behind these? Yeah, well, when Sandy Jolly was foreclosed on uh, and she went to the courthouse to contest the, the, the auction, uh, she was able to talk to a lot of the potential buyers, and they just decided not to bid on them because they didn't want to dispossess this very nice woman. Uh, but there was one person who came with a Bluetooth headset and you know a little standing desk and a little laptop computer whose metrics told them that they should buy this house. And that person uh, ended up buying it on behalf of a company called Colfin AI Five California LLC. So Sandy goes back to her house, and she's sitting in her living room because her key still works, right, even though she's lost the house legally. And the next day, somebody comes with an eviction notice, and he says, I'm evicting you on behalf of Colfin AI California 5 LLC. Um, so it's only years later when I show up, as an investigative reporter, then I'm able to link for her that her landlord was, in fact, Tom Barrick, who is the president's best friend, that he is behind Colfin AI5 California LLC. Uh, this, this, this pattern of homes that we used to be owned by families that are now being owned en masse by shell companies, uh, nearly 3 million homes and more than 10 million apartments around the country, now owned by shell companies, is unprecedented in our nation's history. It's very, very difficult for anyone to figure out who owns what, which is why the Treasury Department uh, is concerned about money laundering. And the Treasury Department has been gathering information in markets, including the Bay Area, Los Angeles, New York, Miami, Chicago, Seattle, where they're especially concerned about money laundering. So at the Center for Investigative Reporting, where I work, we submit a Freedom Information Act request to ask the Treasury Department for the data that they've been getting uh, from title companies about who is behind these shell companies. And we were denied. Uh, we filed another Freedom of Information Act request. We were denied again. We appealed, and we still don't have it. So in December, uh, we went to court and we sued the Treasury Department saying they cannot continue to keep this vital information from the public. And where does that stand at this point? Um, the American system of justice is slow. Yep. So, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, this, is, this may be one issue where there's some movement between now and your broadcast date. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we're not sitting idly by. My phone is... Uh, ringing constantly uh, with uh, local officials around the country, uh, state officials, members of Congress asking, well, if, if the system is set up in such a way where Reveal has to sue to get this information from Treasury, uh, maybe there should be some other way uh, that we can get access to this information. And it's certainly been spotlighted by the recent home occupation in West Oakland, where uh, this group Moms for Housing exactly. occupied a home that was owned by an LLC called Cat amount 2018 properties LLC um, and that caught the nation the nation's attention okay and by the way you point out that in Argentina Australia Israel Jamaica the Netherlands any member of the public may request this ownership information in Russia and Ukraine it's already online public disclosure is coming even to some note I'm reading your words here some notorious tax shelters including the Cayman Islands um, and yeah, yet, so it'll be easier to hide money in L.A. than the Cayman Islands. Yeah, this is, this is horrible. And what are the implications of that anonymity? 
Well, um, it means that if you're a tenant in one of these buildings and your toilet breaks, um, you have no idea who to call. If you are the city um, or the county and there's blight or the owner of the property uh, won't pay their property tax, uh, you end up going to just the registered agent, which could be a P.O. box in Delaware, right? Uh, you might have no way uh, to collect. Uh, if you want to be a home buyer, right, you want to buy a home, what's happening is that the whole inventory of available houses is disappearing before you even have a chance to go to an open house. It's being gobbled up by these companies paying with cash. Um, and, uh, you know, we see the implications of this both at the bottom end of the market, where we have, you know, poor people paying more and more and more in rent um, and unable to save and being pushed out of the regions uh, that they've called home, uh, sometimes for generations. And we see it on the upper end when we have these glorious new glass and steel skyscrapers going up filled with condos that are dark at night. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, we can build and build and build, but it won't necessarily solve our housing crisis if the uh, property that's being built is simply being used to launder money. Um, so we really, as we kind of consider the housing crisis that is in front of us, we really need to ask not only, uh, you know, do we have enough housing, but also who owns the housing that we do have and what are they using it for? Okay, in the last three minutes, what are the reforms and what can listeners do? Um, well, I mean, I would, uh, you know, I, I write in the book about, uh, uh, you know, the conclusion about a number of proposals that have been put forward. Uh, Marissa Baradaran, who's a professor at the University of California at Irvine, has proposed what she calls a new homestead act, where people, where the government would go in and buy up uh, blighted property and then transfer it to people uh, to live in. This might not be so viable in a place like L.A., where real estate is super expensive, but imagine that you're in Detroit mm-hmm. or Chicago or Cleveland or Akron, where, uh, you know, there is a lot of empty and blighted land, uh, and then people could live in it and pay, you know, get it for free, basically, and pay it back over the long term. And, you know, this could be a way where the government would break even, but our economic uh, equity would be very much advanced. That's just one of many ideas that have been put out. So, you know, I'm looking for uh, voters to press the Democratic presidential candidates on the issues that we've been discussing to get them to campaign more on their housing plans. I would hope that, uh, you know, the housing plans of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and the rest of them would get as much scrutiny as their Medicare plans. Uh, and then, you know, definitely look at the state level. Uh, you know, we've been talking about the lack of transparency in property ownership. Uh, you know, property ownership is recorded at the county level. Mm. Uh, you know, we've been talking about the, you know, the government-run bank that existed uh, back in uh, the 1930s that was capitalized by President Roosevelt. Um, you know, there are billions of dollars worth of uh, taxpayer money that is currently deposited in banks like Wells Fargo or Bank of America at every level of government, and there is an increasing public banking movement in the state of California. So um, there are a lot of different ways that people are becoming active in this area, and I'm really interested to see, you know, what rises to the top, because I think everyone understands uh, that what this current situation has not worked for anyone, right? Unless you're, unless you're a close friend of the president, right? Right. I mean, here we hear mostly about the homelessness issue, but as you point out, in cities where homelessness is a crisis, uh, properties lay empty, 
because they're unaffordable, correct? Yeah, there's, there's a lot that we don't know. You know, uh, the fact that the properties are, I would say, they're unavailable, right? So are they uh, empty because they've been bought by an international uh, speculator who's just parking their money? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they being used for Airbnb? Do we just have a classic case of gentrification where people who make more money are moving in, displacing the people who lived there before? And that gets us to the redlining discussion. Can the people who traditionally live there in that neighborhood get the credit that the newcomers are getting? Um, so uh, they are uh, there. There's so many issues at play here, uh, and I'm very, uh, I'm very optimistic that at every level they're starting to be discussed more and more. I like. I mean, we that. see it honestly with the response to the Moms for Housing mm-hmm. occupation in Oakland, mm-hmm. where the governor got involved. Uh, and, and, and various other levels of uh, interest, you know, state lawmakers, uh, city officials, there's a real coming together not only to solve the problem of that one house that the moms were occupying, but also the wider issues that they're raising. Okay, so in addition to revealnews.org, that's revealnews, one word, dot org, where you're a senior reporter with, the, uh, not you have a weekly podcast, but Reveal has a weekly podcast, and your own website, aglance.com, A-G-L-A-N-T-Z.com. Any other websites people uh, can learn more? No, I think those are those okay. are probably the best spots. If they go to Reveal, they can click through and they can uh, read the litigation uh, that we've launched uh, right on the top of the website. Um, well, I shouldn't say this because... Um Right. Not going to air now, but right. I mean, you can read right. testimony that right. I recently made to Congress. Uh, Congress about the Community Reinvestment Act, and uh, you know, if you go to aglance.com, uh, you can find out more uh, about the book Home Records. Okay, so let me tell people this is free forum, a world that just might work, and uh, the book again is Home Records. And long subtitle, How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund Magnets, Crooked Banks, and Vulture Capitalists Suckered Millions Out of Their Homes and Demolished the American Dream. The websites, as we said, are revealnews.org and aglance.com. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles and transcripts, and to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. They're the same website, so that's T-E-R-R. E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y dot net or one word, a world that just might work dot com. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually eight to ten articles to flesh out the context and the conversation, you can sign up at my site or you can email me at temcnally at mac.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and just about every major podcast site. You can find years of podcasts at my site or at those. Um, and you can listen anytime, anywhere. Michael Lewis, Jeremy Scahill, Naomi Klein, Robert Reich, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle. You can also follow me on Twitter, at McNally Terrence. Thanks to G. Lee and Mark Maxwell and uh, Matt Perez and Teddy Robinson in production. George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices. And most of all, you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. And thank you, Aaron Glantz, and keep up your good work. All right. Thank you. Okay.
If you want 24-7 access to everything Progressive on the mobile internet, download the Progressive Voices app at ProgressiveVoices.com. The PV app is a one-stop shop that aggregates everything Progressive. News, blogs, audio, video, opinion, then thoughtfully curates, prioritizes, and presents the Progressive content. The purpose is to create a progressive media universe, an alternative to the one controlled by cable operators, radio station owners, and newspaper publishers. That's the PV app at ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.